guys. <clears throat> just need to say, my voice is a little bit weak, so if we have to just stop in the middle for me to, I don't know, have a cough or something, that'll be okay, won't it? Be fine, okay. Um, as a church, I think we've got used to change. Uh, um, I've been away, and when I came back to this news that we're on the move again, I might be wrong, but my overall impression was that it's no big deal for us. <laughs> we used to change, aren't we? And do you know what? If that means that we're a family with a strong sense of identity and commitment to one another, totally unfazed by little changes, that's a really good thing, isn't it? That's a healthy perspective. So I'm glad about that. That's great. Um, however... <laughs> When I look back, I don't know, five years or ten years and realise just how much we've changed, I'm still a bit stunned. But equally, if you look forward, if you could look forward five years or ten years, I reckon we'll have changed completely again by then and we'll be stunned again, won't we? So God knows what he's doing. But in the light of all this, I just want to start with a quotation that I read and um, it's spoke to me and it's coming up on the screen thanks Becky and I'll read it slowly to take it in transformation or change requires something to fall apart let go instead of tightening control it may be a disconcerting reorientation but change can lead either to new meaning or to bitterness this depends on the inner life. Let go. Just live for a while in the confusing dark space. Perhaps sometimes that means you haven't got to make anything happen. Just live in the space. Allow yourself to be spit up on a new and unexpected shore. That sounds a bit like Jonah, doesn't it? Spit up on a new and unexpected shore. Now, speaking as somebody whose life's changed pretty dramatically over the last few years, and especially in the last 12 months, I could really relate to that. I've lived through some things falling apart, being confused, I've had to let go, and I've lived for a while <laughs> in a rather confusing space. But you know what I find is that God is not in a hurry, that revelation slowly unfurls in this strange new world. <laughs> And my prayer today, preaching in the only way I know, which is just to share what God has said to me, my prayer is that I've got a word for anybody who's a bit disorientated by change or loss. If in your life things have changed, if you've experienced loss, if something has fallen apart, or if for whatever reason you feel you're in a confusing, even dark space right now, I believe God has a word for you. There are inevitably times in all our lives when we find ourselves spit up on a new and unexpected shore. And even if we accept it, we're usually quite impatient to get on and see what God will do next. We're not very good at living for a while in the confusing space. Um, and it might be a season that we're in or we have been in as a church, but we live in a culture that's impatient with gradual growth. 
But I repeat, God's in no hurry. He doesn't care about deadlines. He cares about restoring yours and my soul. In other words, the interior life. And if I can offer anybody advice right now, it would be, don't strive to make things happen. Seek God, be true to yourself, let him restore your soul, and he'll take care of the big picture. Now, I sound like a wise old sage, don't I, saying that, and I'm not. I kicked and screamed against accepting the new and unexpected shore, a bit like Jonah again. Honestly, not so long ago, some more of my friends left Junction 10 and I was upset. I was even heard to say, everybody I've been close to has gone. And I've got a trusty daily reading. It's Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest. I've read it for years. And just at that time, it said, over and over again, God has to remove our friends to put himself in their place. And this is when we falter and become discouraged. Well, I didn't read that and think, oh, great, that's just a word for me. I thought, huh, that's what I thought. And it went on to say, your priorities must be God first, God second, and God third, until your life is continually face-to-face with God and no one else is taken into account. And he quoted Isaiah, who said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord in a time of unprecedented change, in a confusing, disorientating, dark space, Isaiah saw the Lord. Well, that's what I want. I do pray for Junction 10. I do pray for the building, but most of all, I pray that we'll see the Lord. Anyway, speaking for myself, retirement has turned out to be very busy. And like everybody else I know, we find ourselves saying, how did we ever find time to go to work? In the spring, Gemma finished her maternity leave and uh, we took on the task of caring for Teddy three days a week. And he is, like all children and grandchildren, a gift from God and a blessing. Now, it was just about a year ago, this time last year, that our new leaders made a point that meant a lot to me at the time. They said people need time to grieve. They said there have been losses. True. But when we started to look after Teddy, God spoke to me so clearly as I read about Naomi in the Bible, she suffered far greater losses, losses that nothing could possibly make up for. But God gave her a consolation in the form of a little baby boy. And the book of Ruth actually finishes with this. It says, Naomi took the child in her arms and the other women were so happy for her. It's coming up on the screen, thanks. And they said... Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. And may his name, they're talking about the child, be famous in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who's better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, and he was the father of David. 
God was working his purposes out. And all Naomi had to do was care for a little boy and he was her compensation for all that she'd lost. If there is anybody here who suffered loss, I would say to you, look to God, your guardian redeemer. And even though you can't get back what's been lost, he will provide for you and he will compensate you. Having started at the end, I just want to take a closer look at Naomi's story. I can't ever remember starting a Bible study at the end of the narrative before, but I wanted to share um, how this became important to me and the reason why I'm focusing on the older woman in the story. I think we can assume that Naomi started out a happy wife and mother. Uh, her name means pleasant. And she lived with her family in Bethlehem, and they had a good life. Her husband belonged to one of the important families. They had a good life, but then there came great loss. There was a famine. In today's parlance, you might say they went bust. Um, because life is full of unexpected twists and turns. Harold Macmillan uh, was once asked what was most likely to blow a government off course, and he famously replied, events, dear boy, events. Because all prime ministers start out with high hopes, but then things happen, events. What Shakespeare called the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, and how many of you are not where you thought you'd be, perhaps by now? I remember years ago, Kevin will remember this, we sat down as a church uh, leadership team and we put together a five-year plan, didn't we? It was ever so good. We were going to do all these things in five years. It was a bit naive because events happen, stuff happens, and it changes things. For Naomi and her family, there came a tragic chain of events that she would never have imagined in her worst nightmare. Famine drove them from their home to Moab. There were immigrants there, migrant workers. You know, a lot of these refugees that we see pouring out of the Middle East now, they've had good lives. They've had a good education and nice homes, and they've lost everything because of events, stuff happening. And the Hebrew text indicates that this family only intended to stay for a short time, but then events. Disaster struck when Naomi's husband died. His name was Elimelech, and that means my God is king. This was a godly man. Surely this could not have been in the plan, this reversal of everything that Naomi was expecting. The Bible simply says that she was left with her two sons. And sometimes the Bible is very short on detail. You know, I wanted to know, what did he die of? How old were the boys? Did she have to bring them up herself? But it doesn't tell us. It only says that they got married to Moabite women, and actually that was against the rules, because we're in the Old Testament. But for Naomi, events have changed everything. She's a widow now. She was later to say that the hand of the Lord was against her. What use did she have for the law? She hasn't stopped believing in God. Indeed, she refers to him as almighty God. She understood that he was in charge, he's powerful, he's sovereign. But at that time in her life, she doesn't seem to have understood him to be a loving father. Now, my study Bible says this famine was the byproduct of sin. And this was the time when the judges ruled, and it was known to be a time of spiritual confusion and even apostasy. 
But, you know, I've learned to accept that events come and go, stuff happens, and you can't always read into it reasons why things happen. You just have to live in the space and see how God works through it and trust him to work all things together for your good as he's promised to do. For Naomi, things got a lot worse. Both of her sons died when they'd been married for about 10 years. And again, I found myself speculating. I was thinking, did they have some kind of hereditary disease? Was it the reason neither of them had children? Well, it was a waste of time because, as I said, the Bible is short on detail. All we know is that now they're a household of three widows without a man to provide for them. They could have starved. But Naomi heard that there was food now in Bethlehem. She had relatives there. It was still her home. But she didn't plan to take her two daughters-in-law with her. Their mothers would take care of them. They'd come from Moab. They could go back home and marry again. And Orpah agreed to it, but Ruth clung to Naomi. And she said those very famous words, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And this little book would actually now become Ruth's story. Now, it's fascinating to think about why Ruth clung to her mother-in-law. They'd shared so much sadness together, but given their different backgrounds, there must have been opportunities for tension between them, but they obviously loved each other. And people always say that Ruth met the God of Israel through Naomi, which is true. But at that time in her life, Naomi believed in God, but she feared him. She felt crushed by him. And yet somehow... Even though not understanding God, she managed to model something that Ruth wanted, which is interesting. Because I read that the other day. I can't remember where I read it. Somebody said, are we modeling something that people want? Naomi obviously did. Perhaps it was because she was an honest woman. She was true to herself. She wasn't a hypocrite. Perhaps that's what attracted Ruth. Naomi didn't understand. She was crushed by circumstances, but perhaps she never gave up hope for the future. Whatever it was, these women had a close bond and they were faithful to one another. You know, I think people are very attracted to honesty. Very often, you know, we try to be a good witness and end up play-acting. You don't have to try to be perfect or appear perfect to be a witness. It's better to embrace who you are Honestly, this appeals to people, a person who knows they've received grace and therefore is gracious to other people. And however things have worked out for you, if you're just honest and loving and faithful, you can model something people want. There are evangelical Christians around who can put people off the church, you know. Just occasionally, I've seen stuff on Facebook, and I like Facebook, but I've seen stuff that Christians have put that has really made me cringe. And I've heard the so-called religious right from America say things so obnoxious, it made me think, I don't want to be part of the church, let alone anybody else. But stuff like that does not show me Jesus. Grace and humility, integrity, love for the poor, impatience with religious law, these things show the world Jesus and model something that people actually want. And poor old Naomi, she managed to do this at the worst time in her life. 
She did not return to Bethlehem a happy woman. Actually, you might say she was bitter and twisted. Call me Mara, she said. It means bitter. Call me bitter, for the Almighty has made my life bitter. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. So don't call me Naomi. The Lord has spoken against me. The Almighty has done bad things to me, she said. This has been called folklore theology. God did this. He took her husband and both of her sins. Maybe she racked her brains to think what bad things she'd done, what sins she'd committed, and now she was being punished. Poor Naomi. She didn't have the luxury that we have of the whole of Scripture that teaches us that God is love, that tells us that, yeah, we live in a world that's tainted by sin, so stuff happens, events, good people get cancer, earthquakes take people's lives, churches sometimes grow and prosper but sometimes decline, some people are born in peacetime where others live through war and it's all so apparently random but God is love. We know this because we have the whole of scripture and we know that God is love, that God has dealt with sin and that he's going to restore the universe. I know some people don't like Rod Bell, Rob Bell, but I don't think you could disagree with this. He said, if God is Trinity and Jesus is the face of God, then this is a benevolent universe. People live in insecurity and fear and succumb to all kinds of mental health problems because they're basically trying to live with the idea that it's a scary universe in the control of a threatening God who's not on their side. But the good news, the gospel message is that God is love, that creation will be restored, that it's all being healed because of the cross. Well, Naomi didn't know any of that when she got back to her hometown with nothing to show for the years she'd been away. But God had not forgotten her. He gave her a daughter-in-law who was loyal and hardworking, and Ruth went into the fields gleaning that is, following the reapers and picking up the grain that was left over as the poorest people and the foreigners were allowed to do. And then God gave them over and above. He provided a relative who would become their kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer, Boaz. A kinsman redeemer was a male relative who, according to various laws of the Pentateuch, took on the responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who was in trouble or need or danger. And the Hebrew term for kinsman redeemer means one who pays the price to redeem property or person. So that's why Jesus is often known as our kinsman redeemer because he paid the price for us. Basically, what Boaz did was he bought Elimelech's land, he paid for it, and he took responsibility for his family. But more than that, because this is a love story, he married Ruth. And Boaz, in taking on the responsibility for them, was an honourable man. In fact, he was a hero. And I'd really like to just comment on that, if that's okay. For a woman to say this to a man, what makes a man a hero? Bonnie Tyler sang, where have all the good men gone? And where are all the gods? 
Where's the street white Her wise Hercules to fight the rising gods? Isn't there a white knight upon a fiery steed? Late at night I toss and turn and I dream of what I need. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero. And you've all got that song in your head now, haven't you? You can all hear Bonnie Tyler screaming, I need a hero. Yeah, I know. Naomi and Ruth needed a hero, but not a god or a Hercules or a James Bond or a Superman. They just needed an honest man who would look after them. He was a man who thought of other people. He was sensitive to their needs. He was kind and generous and law-abiding, and he took positive steps to help others. He put himself out for them, and that made him a hero. You know, uh, it's nearly two years ago, we lost our brother John. And uh, just before he died, he said to Jill and me that our dad was his hero, which was surprising because two men more different you wouldn't find. John was a self-made, ambitious businessman, the only one in the family who got any money. <laughs> and my dad had got nothing. Uh, but John said to us, he worked in that foundry all his life. You know, you can go to the Black Country Museum now and see demonstrations of what my dad used to do. He was an iron moulder in a foundry. And John said he worked all his life in that foundry for peanuts to look after us. My dad was a hero, as is every ordinary bloke who gets up early in the morning and looks after his family. So, men, whatever you do, whether you go to work or stay at home, you know, if you're sporty or if you're domesticated, if you're rich or poor, if you look after your family, take it from me, okay? I'm a woman, I'm telling you, you're a hero, okay? Doing the right thing, being a provider makes a man a hero. Boaz could not possibly have foreseen that through his child, he would be an ancestor to the greatest king of Israel, King David, and even greater than that, to Jesus the Messiah. He was part of something so big, but he didn't know that. He just did the right thing as circumstances faced him, and God took control of the big picture. My study Bible says the lesson from Boaz's life is that God often uses little decisions to carry out his big plan. And none of us might feel we're doing anything particularly heroic, but God says to you, just keep on doing what's right, and he will take care of the big picture. And so we come to the end of the story. The baby is placed in Naomi's lap, Ruth and Boaz's little boy, and she's compensated for all that she's lost. And the women say to her, he'll renew your life, he'll sustain you in your old age. It doesn't bring them back, the husband and sons that she loved, that enormous great loss that she had. It doesn't bring them back, but she is comforted. And that's my word for you today. Maybe you've suffered loss, perhaps very great loss. And you can't get back what you've lost, but God has a way of compensating you, and he knows what he's about. Events change everything sometimes. Stuff happens, and you might be disorientated by it. You might be living in a confusing space, but just seek God. And in the meantime, although none of us might feel we're doing anything heroic, God says to you, just keep doing what's right, and I'll take care of the big picture. Yesterday, I said to God, how shall I finish this? And it just came to me straight away 
to finish this with that mental picture of Naomi, a sad, sad lady sitting there and taking the child and embracing him and all of her friends who felt so sorry for her, they're rejoicing and they're saying, look, Naomi's got a son now. She's got a little boy. And just this idea that she's compensated, she's comforted, and she has renewed hope for the future. And that's God's word for you. You know, I believe God's going to bring blessing to us as a church and to you as individuals. Something to embrace. I don't know whether it will be a person or a circumstance, but something for you to embrace. And you'll be compensated for what you lost. And you'll be comforted. And you'll have renewed hope for the future. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you know the end from the beginning. You're in control. We are sometimes in a space and we don't understand what you're doing. And we get hurt by stuff that happens. But thank you that through it all, we have a kinsman redeemer who looks after us, who's paid the price for us and who makes it up to us for what we've lost. I just pray for everyone here, Lord. I don't know people's circumstances, but you know each one. You know the losses that people have sustained and the hurt that it's caused, whether in their personal life or in their family or whatever it might be. Lord, I just thank you for this mental picture of Naomi being handed that little boy and feeling herself to be comforted and compensated and renewed hope for the future. Let that picture be in everybody's mind, Lord, and let it be meaningful for them in their circumstances. Just send those blessings, Lord, and we will embrace them and we will rejoice with one another when we see your blessing. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I've managed to do it, West Gemma. <laughs> Thanks, Jim.